My name is Luke Kipfer, and uh, my wife Amy and I are delighted to be with you today. Yes, I'm originally from Ontario, Canada. My wife actually is from just down the road in Shipshawana. Anybody from Shipshawana here? So uh, have uh, some local blood here, and uh, I actually lived here in the area for about a year and a half before we moved to Asia. We've been blessed with three children, and uh, they're all now married. Uh, Recently, we also became grandparents. Any grandparents in the house? All right. So uh, we just flew back from Pennsylvania last night. Our little uh, granddaughter, Avi, celebrated her first birthday yesterday. We live in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and uh, I'm taking on a campus pastorate uh, for our church, The Bridge. Uh, We currently have three campuses in the Chicagoland area, and uh, we're starting a fourth one in September where I'll be taking on the pastorate. So it's, uh, it's a real honor, real honor to be with you. Uh, I love the Word of God. I've been, I was raised with the Word of God, and, and we're going to jump into it this morning. We got a, we got a lot on our, our plate. Um, special thanks to Nate and Joanna and Pastor Jamie for the opportunity that I have to be here with you today. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what are you most thankful for in the faith that we call Christianity or the Christian creed, I wonder what your response would actually be. What are you most thankful for here today? Now, the creeds are all about what we believe as Christians. And today we're going to hit a topic that is absolutely vital to those who name the name of Jesus. As you know, there are some things that are vital, and then there are some things that are not. Every part of my body, for example, serves a certain function. But not every part of my body is vital for life. I could lose a toe and I'd be totally fine. Or maybe an ear and I could live a pretty normal life, even though I'm going to still stay away from Mike Tyson. (laughs) So there are parts of my body that I can live without. And then there are others that I can't live without, right? If you take away my heart, my head, my lungs, I'm done, right? And all parts of our body serve a function. Some are vital for life. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. What is vital to us, what is absolutely vital for us as Christians in our creed? Oh, sure. We can agree to disagree agreeably on a number of issues. There's room for that, right? There's even beauty in that. But what parts of our faith are absolutely vital? Where do we come together and say, this matters most? Because in a world of blurred lines today, we have to champion and focus with clarity on what is vital. And today, from the Christian creed, this is vital. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness. What comes to your mind when you think about this word forgiveness? Does it make you think of something that you need or is it something that you need to extend to another? Perhaps you're withholding it from someone this morning. And by withholding it, you're holding both them in a prison and yourself. Let me explain. I grew up in southern Ontario, and at age four, my parents moved me and the rest of my siblings to Central America, where we became missionaries. Now, at age four, I had a best friend that I left behind in Canada, and three years later, when we moved back, I was so excited to meet this guy that I'm going to call John. Somewhere during my childhood, after I had moved back, uh, John and his family moved away, five, six hours away, in fact. And from that time on, our relationship began to cool considerably. 
I really don't know what happened. I don't really know what I did to offend John. It might have been something between my parents and his parents. I really couldn't tell you today. But I do know that at the age of 16, John was back in our area and we were playing a game of hockey. And it just so happened that right about 10 feet out from the bench, John hit me really, really hard and then proceeded to cuss me out. I don't know why he was so mad. Years went by, I was uh, at a wedding, and I remember daggers coming from John's eyes toward me. I couldn't get closer than 20 feet. Again, no idea why he was so hacked off at me, but he was still super ticked. Fast forward some more years. I'm married now, we've got a kid, and my wife and I are getting ready to move overseas to be missionaries ourselves. And I pray this crazy prayer. I say, God, is there anything you want to reveal to me before we move across the pond, something that will prevent me from fruitful ministry? Is there anything that I need to take care of before I leave? And God spoke. John, God said, you need to take care of things with John. But God, I argued, I, I didn't do anything against John. I, it's not on me. It's on him. He's mad at me, God. He's got to make things right with me. And then God took me to a set of verses in Matthew chapter 5 about offering your gift at the altar. And it says, and there if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to that brother or sister and then offer your gift. In other words, Luke, forgive. Even if it's not your fault. Even if John doesn't come to you asking for forgiveness. Be the mature one, Luke. Be the initiator. So I called John, and the conversation wasn't very long. I really didn't know what to say. I, I asked for forgiveness for offending him. It was pretty vague, and that was about it. But wow, what a difference that phone call made. Two years later, my wife and I had come back to North America on furlough. We were up in Canada. I was at another wedding. John came right over to me, started chatting it up, saying, Look, we got to go out for coffee, man. What a night and day difference couldn't believe it. In fact, I just ran into John about three months ago. Again, super friendly. All because I asked for forgiveness. And this was me asking for forgiveness when it was really him that owed me an apology. He was the offender and he needed to come to me. And God says, no, you need to forgive. You need to release him from that prison and yourself in the works. You know this thing called forgiveness. It's funny how it works. And I wish all my stories were like that one. How often have I grudgingly forgave or stated that I forgave someone, but then brought it up again, brought up the offense again in the future, which really shows I hadn't forgiven. Do you think God shakes his head at us sometimes and says, you know, if I were to forgive you like you forgive others, you'd be in hell. See, we're just not very good at this forgiveness thing. We're not very good at forgive, forgiving others. And I think it stems from a misunderstanding of what forgiveness really is. We don't understand it. I, a recent survey shows that the vast majority of Americans desire to be forgiven more while also admitting they struggle extending forgiveness. In other words, I want forgiveness for the offenses that I've committed, but I sure don't want to extend forgiveness to others. The same survey shows that 60% of Americans say that forgiveness is conditional. If they apologize, if they change their ways, then I will forgive. 58% say that there are situations that are absolutely unforgivable. No forgiveness, ever. Now whether you agree with this or not, that's actually where the majority of our culture is at 
today. We cancel people. And we find ourselves more divided and depressed and angry and mentally weaker than ever before. And God is going, you're not getting forgiveness. Can I take you to a far more peaceful place than this for your own benefit? Can you come with me and lean in to how I define forgiveness? So we're going to look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. You can begin to turn there, click to it on your Bible app or follow along in your Bible. But before we jump into our text, I'd like to lead us in a quick word of prayer. Father, this morning, this is your time. This is your word. And you want to speak to us specifically about something and maybe someone. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lay on our hearts and give us the courage to move forward on this topic of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our text today finds us in Capernaum, a little fishing village on the northern shore of the Lake of Galilee. And it's where Jesus called home for a number of years. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now this is a fantastic question because Peter is asking what our culture is asking today. Is there a point where forgiveness becomes conditional? Is there a point where something becomes unforgivable? I'm sure there's a line somewhere, so where is it? And Peter says seven times, Lord? Now you gotta give Peter some credit here, folks. This is a generous number. Amos, an Old Testament prophet, said this, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. According to the Old Testament law, most Jews believed you had to forgive someone three times. And after the third time, no more. Believe it or not, archaeologists have uncovered these stones, all marked up. They found these markings of ancient records, Stones of offense, if you will. Rebecca said this about me, strike one. Omer didn't return my shovel, strike two. Rocks of offense. People would keep records, write them on a stone, and three strikes, and you're out. And I'm keeping records. I've got it right here on my rock. So Peter here, he's playing it smart. He knows that Jesus usually takes the Old Testament and he doubles it, takes it to a whole new level, right? I mean, how did Jesus word it in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, walk one mile. I say, walk two. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't hate. And so Peter knows this. And he doubles it. And then he adds one more for good measure. You know Peter is standing there waiting for Jesus to give him a sticker. Pete, wow. Well done, man. And Pete's mother-in-law is sitting nearby, leans over to Peter's wife and says, honey, you married so well. Seven times. Man. But Jesus holding back a smile has something else in mind. No, not seven times, Jesus replied. But 70 times seven. And a silence falls over his audience. They're all trying to do the math. 70 times seven? Like like 373? No, no, that's not it. 490? But that's 163 times more than what Amos said. Man, I'm going to have to get a bigger rock to keep my records. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean 490 times on the dot and no more. Instead, in typical Jesus brilliance, style brilliance, he's deconstructing their whole view of forgiveness. In fact, he's completely obliterating their perspective on forgiveness. And then he tells a story that will reconstruct what real forgiveness is. 
And that's what this crowd needs. And folks, it's what we absolutely need today as well. See, we're just as messed up today, if not more. A few months ago, a friend of mine was sitting down with two people who were upset with each other. And this first lady, she had her list, you know. Not on a rock like, a, like, like this crowd, but she had the list, right? You walked by me and didn't acknowledge me. You snapped at me. You're better friends with so-and-so. And the second woman started apologizing. My friend, he's playing the role of a mediator. And she says, I, I didn't mean to ignore you. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I did snap at you. I, I'm really sorry about that too. And so my friend is thinking, well, this is going to be easy. They're going to make up and all will be well. But it was not to be. See, when my friend asked the first lady, you forgive her then? We're all good? <laughs> she said, eh, I don't know. I, I need more time. And my friend was like, time for what? And the lady's response was, well, I'm hurt. And I don't feel it yet. And then she went on to say that she wanted her forgiveness to be genuine. She wanted to feel. She wanted to wait for her feelings to catch up so her forgiveness could be genuine. By the way, this lady just happens to have a trail of severed relationships. She jumps from church to church. She gets hurt when she gets wronged. In the slightest ways, it's the end of the world. You know anybody like that? She refuses to forgive. She's lonely. She's angry. Even though she says that she's like Jesus. Folks, that's a messed up view of what forgiveness is and isn't. And unfortunately, a lot of us are like that. And Jesus says, you got to throw your personal understanding of forgiveness in the trash. Because it's making you easily offended. It's making you miserable. And ultimately lonely. So let's do that this morning. Let's tear down some popular beliefs about forgiveness. Six things that forgiveness is not. And we're going to hit these rather quickly this morning. Number one, forgiveness is not a feeling. This idea of feeling it in order for it to be genuine. Listen, rarely do I ever feel like forgiving someone. Instead, you forgive and your feelings hopefully will follow. That's how we operate as believers. See, we act in faith. We're, we're called to live by faith. We do what God asks us to do, and that is to forgive, regardless of feelings. And then we trust that the feelings will follow. We can't let our feelings lead, especially when we're wronged. Man, if I were to be led by feelings, I'd probably use their offense as leverage to get what I want. I'd hold it over them, get something out of them. Listen, you choose to forgive. You don't feel to forgive. Number two, 60% of folks out there say that forgiveness is contingent on an apology, which means that we will hold on to things. We'll let them live rent-free in our head. And then we end up living in this self-imposed prison of killing ourselves with bitterness because they may never apologize. Folks, that's just self-inflicting mental injury. If they haven't apologized yet, the chances are they probably never will. They'll continue to live destructive, stubborn, self-righteous lifestyles. But do you want them to be controlling you? Remember my friend John. He needed me to take the first step to let him out of his prison. So don't let the quality of your life be contingent on them changing and apologizing. You can forgive. You can release yourself. You can release them. You can choose. Number three, forgiving is not forgetting. You know, sometimes there's these super spiritual Christians out there that'll say, you know, believers forgive and they forget. Seriously? Believers who've been molested or raped should just forget? 
No. No, it's impossible. And that's putting an absolutely heavy weight on victims today. Forgive, yes, but we're still going to remember. You're still going to feel that residual pain. And you need to work through that. And we are here for you to help bear that pain. But it's not on you to forget. And having said that, some will actually use this as an excuse to not forgive. Oh, I forgive, but I don't forget. (laughs) What's that supposed to mean? That attitude certainly doesn't ooze forgiveness. See, when I choose to forgive, I choose to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And I'm not going to keep my rock around. I'm going to move on and I'm going to let him deal with the justice aspect. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that brings me to my next point, number four. Some think that because forgiveness has been extended, justice has also taken place. Not so. You can forgive someone and you can still allow the charges to be pressed. You can forgive someone and there's still consequences. You can forgive someone and then you can still testify against them in court. You know, too often many parents allow their children to never face the consequences of their actions. And they label it forgiveness. Oh, we're very forgiving, they say. No, they're very enabling. Number five. Some say forgiveness automatically restores trust. Listen, a a, a person very close to our family has spent time in prison twice for sexually molesting minors. Did he get the privilege of spending time alone with our kids? No way. You see, trust gets built over time. It can be torn down in a moment. You can forgive someone, folks, but you might not be able to trust them ever again. Or it may take some time. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to be buddy-buddy, best friends. You might have a parent or an acquaintance. You may have a coworker who hurt you. You don't have to wait for an apology. You can forgive them. But that doesn't mean you need to return back to being as close to them as you were before. It might not happen right away, or at all, but you choose to forgive. And hopefully, hopefully trust will be rebuilt. Hopefully you can rebuild that relationship, but it might take some time, and that's okay. Number six, last one. Some say forgiveness is a singular event, but that's not always the case. You know, sometimes you can forgive someone, but that emotional moment still feels very raw and fresh. You forgive someone, but then it hits you the next day. Man, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that to me. And those feelings of anger and raw emotion come washing back over you again. You see, sometimes forgiveness needs to be repeated over and over and over again. You may need to pray, God, I've forgiven them, but I'm hurting today. And I need your help to help forgive them again. I wish I could say that when you forgive, it's all over. But often it's not. And we need to practice this process of, of continual forgiveness. I mean, isn't that Jesus' point? 70 times 7, over and over and over. Now let me qualify this one, for, uh, uh, however, because we may have some women here today who are being abused. And I don't want you thinking that, oh, you just need to keep on forgiving them as they continually abuse you. Listen, you need to get out of the house today. You may say, well, but I'm scared, and I, and I get it. But listen, we've got some staff at this church you need to talk to. 
And we got some really big dudes here. We, I've met your pastor. They love Jesus. And they would be more than happy to protect a sister. And I really mean that. Forgiveness does not mean that you allow someone to habitually abuse you. Bottom line, after you forgive, sometimes you have to remove yourself. And you have to realize that those moments of emotional power are very present. They don't just automatically leave. You forgive again and again and again. And that's Jesus' point here in verse 22. He's tearing down the commonly held messed up views of forgiveness that our culture has. Three strikes and you're out. He's redefining it 70 times 7 beyond what you can keep track. Beyond what Amos or Peter said. Beyond all the tally marks on your rock. See, forgiveness is a way of life. Jesus isn't playing the doubling game. You know that Peter thought he was going to play. There's no doubling or tripling here. Rather, Jesus is obliterating the ceiling on forgiveness. Jesus is saying it's not about an amount. It's about a way of life. It's what we do. It has been and it should be the main staple of people who name the name of Christ. We're forgivers. We turn the other cheek. Now, it doesn't mean we naively allow ourselves to be trampled on, but we are forgivers. In fact, this is how we stand out in the world. My wife was telling me a story this morning about a, a guy from the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, for some reason, he came across this concept that Christians forgive. A God who forgives their enemies. And it blew this guy away in the Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, my wife has worked with an organization in Chicago called PrayerCast. Go to prayercast.com. They pray for the nations all over the world. And this guy prayed a prayer. He became a Christian because it blew his circuits that we forgive our enemies. That's what led him to Christ. And he's the one that prayed the prayer for the Muslim Brotherhood after leaving it. Folks, that's how we stand out. Jesus teaching his disciples something absolutely vital here. 70 times 70. Now some in Jesus' audience are still using their fingers to count, right? And Jesus is like, stop trying to do the math, guys. Less math, more grace. Less rock scratches, more clean slates. In fact, just get rid of your rocks. And I'm sure he sees the crowd struggling with this. It's such a new and difficult concept for them. So he tells a story. And after he's done, the crowd, it probably starts laughing because seriously, this is a funny story. And we often miss a lot of Jesus' humor, right? Different time, different context, and we lose some of it in translation. Either way, the story we got in our text here is about a guy who owes a king. 10,000 talents, the text says. It's an absurd amount of money. Verses 23 and 24, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now one talent is 6,000 denarii. And one denarii is a day's wage. Folks, we're talking 10,000 talents. That's 60 million days of work. This guy like owes the national debt. It's a crazy amount of debt. All right? This guy has racked it up somehow. We're not sure how. But it actually amounts to 165,000 years of labor. Doesn't matter if he wins the lottery. This guy's not paying it back. 
And so the king says in the next few verses, all right, I'll sell you, your wife, and your kids, and the future generations of your family. Now here's how the slave system worked back then. If you racked up a debt, you and your family would be sold as slaves until the debt was repaid. It's the way it worked. Basically, the average American would be a slave today. This guy is doomed for generations. Verses 26 and 27. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Yeah, like, right, dude. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. With one stroke, the king forgives. 60 million days of work, forgiven, wiped out of the books. And again, consider the brilliance of Jesus. He's giving us a simple working definition of forgiveness. Our society really can't define it today, folks. But 2,000 years ago, on the shore of a little fishing village, Jesus defined it. It's simple, and yet a powerful definition. See, forgiveness is canceling a debt. Whenever you are hurt, whenever you've been mistreated, whenever you've had a sense of something being taken away from you, perhaps someone stole your idea at work, or they took away a sale from you, Maybe they took that recognition or that commission that you, that was owing you. And those people that did that to you, they owe you. Maybe your mom or dad left you. They took a piece of your childhood from you and they owe you. They robbed you of not being tucked into bed by both mom and dad. They robbed you of having both parents. Or maybe you're here today and it was that spouse who took off on you and it's 80% the blame is on them. They took something from you. They took that first marriage and they owe you because you stood at the altar and you made a promise and they robbed you of the chance of finishing what you pledged to start. And so anger steps in at that point like a bodyguard and it says, you owe me. You owe me my innocence. You owe me my marriage. You owe me a piece of my childhood. You owe me that job. You owe it to me to have been at my wedding. You owe it to me to have tucked me in at night. You owe me my reputation. You owe me. And often, they do. They owe you. Just like the people sitting on the shore that day, we keep a running tab of what people owe us. This person owes me that, and that person owes me this. Oh, we don't have a rock with scratches on it, but we keep it up here. It's why many of us are struggling mentally. All these debts, all these open accounts, and we'll hold the receipts, the memories, the anger, the bitterness, until we get paid. And Jesus says here, forgiveness is closing the account. Oh, that's a nice thought, Luke. Maybe I'll consider it. But truth be told, that doesn't sit very well with me. Because you don't know, Luke, what they did to me. You don't know what that cost me in life. You don't know how deeply that affected me and my future. And no, I don't. And I won't pretend to relate to your story today or to your pain. I don't understand. So we turn to Jesus. Because thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us with a definition of forgiveness this morning. He's taking us somewhere. So let's get back to his story. This huge burden has been lifted from the servant this national debt forgiven, a new lease on life for this guy, and look what he does. Verse 28, 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Folks, this guy finds someone who owes him a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what he owed the king. And what he had just been forgiven. His debt was canceled, forgiven. But the debt against him, he's keeping that account open. He's withholding forgiveness. And word gets back to the king. Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Let's get, me, let's get this straight, says the king. I forgave you 165,000 years of labor. And you turn around and withhold forgiveness from somebody who owes you like three months worth of work? 34 and 35. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I got to admit, folks, this is one of those verses in scripture that I wish I could just tear out of my Bible, erase from our Bibles. You know, you ever come across a verse like that? This is serious. I know, I know, there's a lot of us in this room that have been deeply hurt. If we went around the room and we shared all the collective pain here, folks, there'd be a lot of us mad at the people who hurt you. We'd get, out, we'd get why you're holding out on forgiveness. We'd understand, because some of it's pretty deep. And as you share your story, we'd want to go out and, you know, bring some serious retribution to those offenders. But here's what Jesus says. Because he's better than me. I don't have the nerve to say it, but he does. Jesus says, you know you got to cancel their debt or I'm coming after you. Seriously, folks, that's actually what verse 35 is saying. And we think, Jesus, how could you say that? You know what they do. You know what they're like, and they're not even sorry. And Jesus would say, I'm saying it for your benefit. I've got your best in mind. You can't live this way. And also, because God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Listen, you and I had an open account with God. We owed him big time. We were headed down a dead-end street, dead in our trespasses on our way to an eternity in hell. We owed God, and there was no way back. We could never pay him back. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, in his mercy, in his kindness, he looked down at us with a tender heart, and he said, I know they can't pay me back. It'll never happen. So I'm going to close the account on them, forgiven. And God took on flesh. He came and paid our debt. He closed our account. And I know we have some anger here. We all have some anger and pain and rejection that we deal and struggle with. Some things that we wish we could forget, but we can't. But if God can close the account on us, can we close the account on others? If you can't, we got to take another look at this verse. Jesus is unrelenting on this because he knows you are not forgiving. You're holding on to it. You're actually pushing that self-destruct button on your life. And truth be told, 
they really can't pay you back anyway. Sure, you can be mad at your dad for the rest of your life because he wasn't there for you. But if he were to come up to you today and say, hey, how can I make it up to you? You'd say, you can't, dad, because the reality is we can't go back. We can't turn back time for him to teach you how to throw a ball or to tuck you into bed. We can't turn back time and undo mom as a single mother. There's really nothing that can be done to fix the past. The reality is, whoever hurt you, whether that's a boss or an ex, a friend, maybe a business partner, a parent, they can't go back. They can't ever repay you. There are things that can't ever be repaid. It's why God in his kindness looks down and says, you know, well, then I got an idea for you. Why don't you follow my lead? Let's close the account. Because this running tab is only hurting you. Why don't you leave the anger here? Why don't you leave the bitterness here? Leave your resentment here and let's close the account today. C.S. Lewis wrote, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's what Jesus is saying in the text. It's what Jesus is saying is the mark of a Jesus follower because forgiveness is a reflection of our faith. The way in which we forgive is a reflection of how we see God's forgiveness to us. A national debt worth of sin canceled on my behalf. I stand before God today with this incredible forgiveness. My debts have been canceled. And Jesus is very strong here on this point. Because forgiveness is a huge reflection of our faith. And it translates into how I forgive others. Look at what Jesus says earlier in Matthew. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know, I need to remember this, especially since I live in Chicago, when someone cuts me off in traffic and I start to tailgate them. The measure in which I forgive, it will be measured back to me. If I'm a forgiving judge, I will meet a forgiving judge. If I'm harsh and strict with others, I will meet a more harsh and strict judge. Folks, this is not works-based. This is not karma because in the end, we don't get what we deserve. Jesus is very, very clear when it comes to forgiveness and how we deal with offenders. It will be taken into account when our own offenses are dealt with. It's why the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This conjunction as in the verse can be translated as like. Forgive us our trespasses like or similarly to how we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, suddenly I don't like this part of the prayer as much. Jesus again repeats here the connection, right? between how we judge and the measure in which we will be judged. It's why on the shore of Capernaum that day, he looks over a crowd that is keeping score, killing themselves with their records. And he says, stop doing the math. Stop running the tabs. Less math and more grace. Realize your debt and do to others what God is doing to you. Forgive us our trespasses like we forgive those who trespass against us. I want to close today by telling you a story. 
that highlights the power of forgiveness. You may have seen the movie, Amish Grace. It's currently on Amazon Prime. Go home and watch it today. It depicts the tragedy that happened 17 years ago on October the 2nd, 2006. A gunman by the name of Charles Roberts entered the Nickel Mines Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. He shot 10 girls that day. Five of them were killed. And then he turned the gun on himself. Of the five who survived, at least one of them is still unable to walk or talk, has terrible seizures all the time. One Amish man called that this is our 9-11. Now immediately following the tragedy, those who were left behind tried to pick up the pieces of their fractured lives. An Amish grandfather who had lost his granddaughter that day was actually consoling a group of schoolboys just outside the schoolhouse where it had happened. And the grandfather said this, we must not think evil of this man. On the evening of the shootings, Amish elders went to Mr. Roberts' home where the shooter's wife lived alone with her three children now. And they also went to the home of the parents of Mr. Roberts and they embraced the family. They said, we hold no grudges against your husband, against your son. At the shooter's funeral, over half of the 75 people in attendance at the shooter's funeral were Amish. Many of them were family members of the girls who were shot the week before. The Christmas following this tragedy and for many years following, a bus of Amish carolers would show up at the Roberts home. Over $4 million of donations came in for the families. A committee, mostly made up of Amish people, allocated a portion of that to the shooter's widow to help take care of her kids. And you know, as the Amish reached out to the Roberts family, they in turn began to embrace the Amish in nickel mines as well. It's an incredible story. They visited every family who lost a girl in the tragedy. And the shooter's mother, Terry, she developed a very special bond with Rosanna King. That was the youngest and the most severely wounded one, the one that can neither walk nor talk, the one that has seizures all the time. For many years following the shooting, Terry would drive to the King household every Thursday, and she would hold and rock Rosanna in her arms, singing to her. Reflecting on the Amish response to her son's actions, Terry said this. They were willing to forgive, even on the first day, if they could forgive my son, how could I not forgive him? The Lord's Prayer calls us to forgive, so I must forgive. Terry said, I was so angry at what he had done. And yet the realization that if I chose not to forgive him, I would have the same hole in my heart that he had. It's not automatic or without pain when we forgive. Forgiveness frees us to move forward, but it doesn't take away all the pain. It just helps us to know how to navigate the next step. And I think that's what God has given me, has given the Amish community. The ability to take next steps and moving forward in order so that we can meet life and live life. <clears throat> Folks, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of my sins. A generous king who canceled my massive debt. I believe in that wonderful forgiveness. And the more I believe that, I begin to believe in forgiving others as well. And that brings us to a question in closing. So what? So what? Where does this message land with you? So what are you going to do 
with it. And maybe more precisely, we could ask this. Whose debt do you maybe need to cancel today? Are you carrying around a burden that you weren't meant to carry? Do you need to come to the altar and lay something down this morning? Is there someone you need to forgive? I'm going to pray and Pastor Jamie's going to come up and wrap this up. But I want you to seriously ask, God, is this the moment that you want me to lay this down? And I want to give you an opportunity to do that as I pray. Pastor Jamie, would you come? Father, this morning we thank you in Jesus' name that you forgave us a massive debt that we could never pay back. We thank you, Lord God, that you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You set us free. You forgave us. And then you gave us the mandate to forgive others because you knew that was best for us. And it was the only answer for a broken world where brokenness and sin and evil have destroyed and there are debts too big to be repaid. Father, this is your design. This is the gospel. And we believe the gospel. But God, sometimes it's incredibly hard for us to forgive. And this morning, we're asking for courage. We're asking, Lord, for wisdom to know how to go about it. We're asking, Lord, for the strength to lay down at your feet what you are calling us to lay down. And so, Father, give us a name. Give us a circumstance. Give us something, Lord. Bring to mind right now what you would have us to lay down, to forgive, to cancel an account in Jesus' name.